This is the first of two Dharma talks I'm going to give this week and next week um, that are focused on the Second Noble Truth. Um, the Second Noble Truth really describes the cause of dukkha, which is the focus of the First Noble Truth. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the Dhammachaka Pravatana Sutta. It's a lot of words and a lot of syllables. Uh, basically, it's the, typically translated as the first turning of the wheel of truth. Supposedly, it's the first talk given by uh, the Buddha after his awakening. Uh, it's translated by Tomisaro. It's part of the... Uh, the uh, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Stress is, birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. So that's a part of that suit. I'll be reading more of it in a moment. The part that's the topic for this evening is uh, the uh, craving that makes for further becoming. Craving for becoming basically means a moment of selfing that's becoming. Craving, uh, craving for non-becoming basically means having a moment of selfing that you really, really don't want to have. You want to get rid of it. You don't want to be that. Craving for non-becoming is really about dukkha. Although craving for becoming... Um, certainly falls into that category. So, I, in this uh, brief quote, I did not mention the fourth noble truth, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, it's not a, I'm not going to be talking about that tonight. And it will be covered extensively in future talks. We'll probably spend a couple of months going through the Noble Eightfold Path. It's really, several months actually, it's, it's a very important part of this. Uh, the uh, Noble Eightfold Path's function is to provide the ways and means for realizing the potential of the Third Noble Truth, which is the letting go of craving and clinging. So here's another excerpt from that same sutta uh, describing three stages for realizing the benefits of these truths. To be comp to comprehended, 
to be uh, dressed and to be realized in their full potential. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of stress. This noble truth of stress is to be comprehended. This noble truth of stress has been comprehended. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the origination of stress. This noble truth of the origination of stress is to be abandoned. This noble truth of the origination of stress has been abandoned. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. This noble truth of the cessation of stress is to be realized. This noble truth of the cessation of stress has been realized. Now, just a reference to the second noble truth. That's the part about uh, uh, the recognizing to be aware of the origination of stress, which is the um, focus of the second noble truth, and abandoning it and the uh, realization of that abandonment. And that leads to the third noble truth, which is the uh, third part of that quote. So, what I want to talk about tonight covers a couple of areas. One of them is just a basic review, like I've just started doing, about the what the doctrine is and the particular concepts that are involved. And then I want to talk about some of the neurological uh, understandings that we have now that um, are associated with the cause of dukkha, of craving and clinging. At the core of the problem of dukkha are three characteristic functions that we are all um, experiencing pretty much all the time, one way or another. Greed, aversion, and ignorance. Uh, greed and aversion are innate drives that we all have. I mean, it's just part of being an organism. It's instinctual. Um, ignorance it's also, you could say it's, it's instinctual, it's, it's hardwired into the way our brains operate. But the focus of the um, awakening process is to really comprehend the experience of greed or aversion um, through wisdom. And wisdom is the absence of ignorance. So, in terms of how the system operates, you can have greed and ignorance or aversion and ignorance. And they can flip from one to the other very quickly. 
An example would be um, you can have a great desire for a particular kind of experience. Um, I'll just say something like there's a movie you really want to see on uh, TV, right? You've been looking forward to it. You're really excited about it. So there's greed and ignorance. The, the greed is obvious. There's desire. The ignorance is attachment to that desire, the anticipation of the fun that you're going to have. And then you find out that the, uh, the program that was announced that's supposed to be on is not on. There's something else on instead, some special news event. So in a moment, greed and ignorance flips over into aversion and ignorance. It can happen very quickly. We've all had this experience. So one of the core uh, elements of Buddhist practice is coming to terms with this kind of self-organizing function. Now one of the things that the Buddha re mentioned in his teachings in terms of ignorance it involves the tyranny of I, me, and mine. I is basically my, the subjective uh, um, witnessing process. I witness this. I know this. Me is a possessive part of it. This happened to me. This is all about me. Same with mine. That possessive quality. So all characteristics of ignorance. And this involves what I call, or creates what I call, uh, self-state conflict. Now, this week and next week, I'll be talking about something, that, that uh, a concept or an approach to understanding this that I've developed over the years that many of you have heard before. But uh, the process moved from self-state conflict, which is what dukkha is about, to self-state integration. Um, and self-state integration basically means having a more balanced personality, uh, more self-discipline, more self-awareness, uh, more of the ability to live an ethical life. And that sets the stage, uh, creates the conditions for the realization of self-state liberation. Self-state liberation has two ways of looking at it. The classical, traditional one is experience of nirvana, the unconditioned. Uh, and that's certainly valid. There's also another one that I think is um, important for us perhaps even more important, more realizable than the experience of nirvana, which is um, a more joyful, uh, effective life. A life that's relatively um, unafflicted with greed or aversion. The potential is there, but we have the self-awareness, self-discipline that uh, enables us to not be afflicted with the craving and clinging. 
Uh, I've mentioned craving and clinging, and that's going to be um, the focus of a good bit of the rest of this talk. So, about self-state integration, let me just say this a little bit more. I'm going to be talking more about this next week. It's being aware of impulsive reactivity as a phenomenon. As I said before, it's instinctual. And it can either be noted as um, what's called affect approach, impulsive reaction that's pleasurable, or affect avoidance, an impulsive reaction that is trying to avoid or get rid of um, something that's not pleasurable, some subjective experience. There's an ideal self-identification that we all have because of our prior conditioned experience, the way we were raised, our karma. And for the most part, our memory banks, so to speak, provide a useful reference that allows us to go through the day more or less successfully. The more self-state conflict there is, the more stressful life is, the more frustrating, the more disabling, uh, both in terms of your own self-experience and in terms of relationships, in terms of how you function in society and so forth and so on. With self-state integration, um, there's an ability to be mindful of this impulsive reactivity and not be particularly affected by it. You can be aware of pleasant or unpleasant feeling, but there's a quality of dispassion about that called viraga. doesn't mean emotional flatness. It just basically means that you can be aware of the unpleasant feeling as a phenomena, but there's no pull associated with it. And there's also an awareness that whatever the mind creates relative to a particular circumstance, it's just a fabrication. And so the mind is less attached to that um, fabrication. So, and I want to talk about those particular functions more specifically, and it's pretty much going to be the, the topic for the rest of this um, discussion tonight. So the first one is craving. And the Pali word for craving is tanha. And that's uh, translated as unquenchable thirst. When I'm going to talk about the neurology of it pretty soon, it'll make more sense about the unquenchable thirst. There's another term that's often considered to be synonymous with tanha, which is called raga. That's passion. And I mentioned dispassion a minute ago. So raga is passion. Viraga is the absence of passion. So passion is this being fired up about something. 
You can be fired up about something that's pleasant. You can be fired up about something that's unpleasant. So there's this, this surge of energy. That's what craving is. Now, there are many uh, findings of contemporary research that describe what happens in the brain associated with craving. This research has been going on for a long time prior to the investigation, the, the, the informed investigation of Buddhist practices. So I think it's important to understand that it's interesting. I do a lot of research online about these different functions. Uh, a lot of the research is done by people who have no idea about Buddhism, none whatsoever. And yet the functions or, or mental processes, the drives that are being associated with these different parts of the brain an informed reader will say, oh yeah, yeah, that's craving. That's absolutely craving. Um, in fact, there's a book that I read many years ago because uh, as a psychotherapist, one of my specialties was uh, addiction, uh, helping people recover from addiction. And there was a book that I read called The Addicted Brain. It was written by well, actually, it was ghostwritten by a person who was associated with a neuroscientist, a psychiatrist. And they talked about craving in terms of addiction. And I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is Buddhism. This is Buddhism for sure. In fact, one of the reasons why I became a psychotherapist and work with addictions is because of my training in Buddhism, which started several years before I went to graduate school. So this issue of craving is a really important consideration um, in terms of mental health, well-being. So, in the brain, there's a part of the brain that's assessing data input called the limbic system. Um, limbic basically means on the border. So th these neural structures are on the border between the more instinctual, deeper parts of the brain and the more cognitive, rational, uh, outer co uh, core of the outer, outer uh, layers of the brain, uh, the cortex. So uh, in the uh, limbic system, there are different clusters of neurons one, and, and realize that the, the what I'm talking about, there are pairs of them. For example, the first one I'm going to mention is the amygdala. So there's a, a amygdala in the left hemisphere and amygdala in the right hemisphere. Each one of them have their own function. But basically, the function of the amygdala is to um, assess incoming stimulus, friend or foe, food or poison create a, a very unsophisticated instinctual response 
that is more affective than cognitive. It's more about feelings um, than it is about thinking. It's closely associated with another cluster, of two clusters of neurons that are located just forward of that in the limbic system called the nucleus accumbens. Now, nucleus accumbens has been studied for 40 or 50 years now because it's associated with addiction. The function of the, of the nucleus accumbens is to organize action to either seek, reward, or avoid punishment. So the amygdala is kind of the alerting process. The nucleus accumbens is preparing for responding to that alert. One of the things that we know when someone is really addicted is that that process is stuck in the on position. It's always, there, there's never enough Someone who has an addiction, uh, particularly a substance addiction, the brain structure is changed in such a way that no matter how much alcohol you drink, the body adapts to it and wants more, even to the point of unconsciousness. Um, it's very debilitating so one of the things that's also been discovered which I knew because of my background in Buddhism when I first got into the counseling business it was considered that the only real addictions are alcohol and opiates and nicotine nicotine is considered to be among the most addictive substances known to humanity. Also uh, cocaine and um, other stimulants like uh, uh, methadrine. Um, so uh, these chemicals um, are or these processes associated with these chemicals are what cause this thirst, this unquenchable thirst to go on. Now the addiction studies are becoming more sophisticated and uh, people can be addicted to all sorts of um, processes. People can be addicted to uh, spending money. People can be addicted to sex. People can be addicted to something like reading um, or fooling around in a computer, right, on the internet. Um, people can be addicted to eating. Um, so this is really important to understand about craving, is that the way the brain operates, the wiring in the brain, is uh, modifiable. The brain is an organism that is changing all the time. There's something interesting from uh, the Buddha's teaching, he said um, one, uh, several times, if I didn't believe that a person could change to be freed from dukkha, 
I wouldn't be teaching you this. But I know from my own personal experience, yes, people can be, uh, can change their minds. And he was talking about something that now is described in terms of neuroscience as neuroplasticity. The connections between neurons in the brain are uh, being activated or deactivated depending on stimulation and repetition. So um, that's an important thing to understand in terms of craving. The other thing that's important about it is something that's called long-term potentiation, which was uh, being talked about in the 1950s. That's how long ago. Um, and the, the short term for that is neurons that fire together, wire together. What that means is that when a stimulus activates a neuron, and these neurons operate in clusters, in streams, if you will. Uh, a neuron gets stimulated, gets activated. It has several connections to further neurons, we'll call it downstream. So that signal gets distributed to other neurons. When they're activated, they get distributed, they have distributed connections to other neurons. So neural pathways are activated. We know this because of modern neuroscience um, uses something called a functional MRI machine. Basically what they do is they inject uh, a non-toxic radioactive dye into your veins and arteries and um, give people particular tasks and put them in a functional MRI machine and watch what happens. So whenever these neurons are firing off, glucose is going through the bloodstream to the neurons and feeding them. Now this feeding them, something I'm gonna come back to in a minute when I talk about clinging. Uh, so the glucose and oxygen are what are the fuel for the uh, neural networks. And so they could tell that when uh, particular neural pathways were activated, the functional MRI system would kind of light up. It's like watching a video. Um, you knew there was a lot of glucose there because there was a lot of blood there and a lot of this radioactive dye. Why is this important? Because what they discovered was the more these particular neural pathways were activated, the easier it was for them to be re-stimulated and the stronger the signal strength was. So this is how habits are formed. That's what this is all about, is understanding how the brain operates from a neurological perspective, but now associating that with Buddhist doctrine, Buddhist concepts. So long-term potentiation is a way to think about habits. Now, long-term potentiation is ethically neutral. Um, long-term potentiation can be in, in terms of uh, something as simple as tying your shoes. The neural pathways that are involved that send a signal to your, your hands, 
you know, your eyes and your hands and so forth and so on. Um, it's, it's not uh, wholesome or unwholesome. You just tie your shoe. However, long-term potentiation can also apply to neural pathways that are um, wholesome. So doing something like being kind, the more you practice being kind, the easier it is to be kind. Alternatively, the more unwholesome pathways are activated, the easier it is to, to reactivate them. So this is where the affect approach and affect avoidance process uh, plays out in terms of craving. So when I read the quote from the uh, Suda, one part of it was working through the Four Noble Truths involves overcoming the craving that makes for further becoming. And I mentioned what What's becoming? What's that mean? It means a moment of self-organization. A moment of self-awareness. Right? And there are streams of these moments of self-awareness. We're all experiencing this right now. <clears throat> this leads to the concept of clinging. So clinging is very closely associated with craving. In fact, I often write down craving slash clinging. <clears throat> um, and it's basically the effect of misperceiving craving to the extent that it becomes self-defining, self-organizing. Pali word for clinging is upadana, <clears throat> which is translated as clinging, Grasping or attachment. The original meaning of upadana was associated with fuel, sustenance, or nutriment. Related to, uh, during those times, uh, the Buddha to the rituals of the Brahmin priests. One of their tasks was to keep sacred fires burning. So they had fuel that had been made sacred, ritualistically, and they would uh, put the fuel on the fire. Now, one of the things that the Buddha did that I, I admire, I've talked about this many times, he would take some of these terms that were pretty common uh, in that era and repurpose them. So he changed the understanding of the word upadana from being <clears throat> some kind of ritualistic function to craving and clinging. So we can imagine upadana as a kind of psychic fuel. I mentioned the blood that carries glucose and oxygen to the neurons when they're firing up. Long-term potentiation. So as that process operates and those patterns become more routine, in their activation, they become almost self-perpetuating. And the most basic and fundamental 
manifestation of this self-perpetuating cycle is your just very sense of being, your ego. And we, we treat ego as a noun, my ego. Ego is more realistically like a verb. It's a function that sorts through all the, the cascade of stimulation that's going on for us at any given moment. Auditory, visual, sensations in the body, memories, hunger, uh, whatever. Sorts through all that and up pops on the screen of awareness one particular element or segment of that process. Right? That's what ego is, is that sorting process. And pops up on the screen and it's how we live. What the Buddha discovered is that this process is transitory, impermanent. Anicca is the proper term. And anatta, non-self, which means that there's nothing inherently exclusive or enduring about these moments of self-organizing functions. Changing all the time. Now, this is another thing that contemporary um, neuroscience research and basic psychology research is realizing that there is no core part of the brain that's running the show. Cognition, affect and cognition are dispersed through different areas of the brain. So there's nothing that can be pointed to and say, okay, this is where the self is. It's not, not the case. Also, there are all kinds of uh, psychological terms that indicate that the sense of self is conditioned by prior experience, particularly interpersonal experience. I've talked about this many times and probably will again. So uh, that's the important thing to understand about upadana, this fuel. So now I'm going to bring in another cluster of neurons or two clusters of neurons right next to, very closely associated with the amygdala called the hippocampus. The function of the hippocampus is to coordinate the functions of the amygdala and the memory centers of the brain. So it creates an initial kind of perceptual process. I talked about the ego. This is sort of how the ego formation process gets uh, instigated, originates. Um, so the amygdala and the hippocampus get stimulated and that makes all kinds of associations. <clears throat> the signal goes from the amygdala to the nucleus accumbens, and there's an instinctual drive, either affect approach or affect avoidance. Simultaneously, signal is going to the, um, from the hippocampus to the other areas of the brain, what are called the associational cortex. It's out in the uh, outer layers of the brain where our memories are stored. 
<clears throat> now, in this process, we want to talk about what's called bottom-up and top-down. Now, bottom-up basically means light hits the eye, stimulates an optical process, which stimulates the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens and the hippocampus. And that sends a signal up out into the other parts of the brain, preparing for action. It's instinctual and um, rather unsophisticated and reactive. Um, let's say that you're doing something and you're working at a countertop and you bump up against something with your hand and it starts to fall off the counter. You don't have to think about it. You just reach out and grab it. That's instinctual, right? So stay with me on that. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the hippocampus is sending a signal to the association cortex where the memories are going on and the memories are starting to sort through, okay, in terms of what's happening now, what kind of precedents are there for this? What happened in the past? This is where karma plays out. What happened in the past that can be related to what's going on right now? So let's assume that this process is going on and when it happens, there's a lapse of a fraction of a second, literally fraction of a second, um, maybe a third of a second. There's research that's kind of timing this out. Let's say it's a third of a second, not very much lapse of time there. Well, during that lapse of time, the association cortex is getting a more refined, sophisticated um, set of assumptions and expectations about what's going on. Meanwhile, the instinctual part of the brain is already going toward action. So something gets knocked off the counter, you reach for it, and you realize that it's a knife, a very sharp knife. Now, are you going to grab it or are you going to let it fall to the floor? Right? If it's purely instinctual, you're probably going to grab it. If you think about it, fraction of a second, you might pause and let it fall to the floor because you don't want to cut your hand. As I'm saying this, I remember when I was in high school, I was the lab assistant for my biology teacher. And there was a box of probes. They're like long, pointy pieces of wire that have dowels on the end of them. We use them for dissecting frogs, which is what we did back then. Well, I reached up for this box and it fell out of my hand and I reached out to grab it and a bunch of those uh, things, those tools came down and a couple of them actually went right through my finger or my hand between my fingers and kind of poked out the other side. Freaked my girlfriend out. I was just kind of, wow, look at that. Isn't that cool? Right? Um, but that's the same, that, that reflexive response. Now, this is what craving and clinging is about. So I want to use a couple more examples um, in terms of this lag time. 
this story goes all, or this simile goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. You're walking down a pathway at night. It's not very well lit. Your eyes see this sinuous shape on the ground. Your mind jumps to the conclusion it's a snake. As that happens, muscles tense up and you jump back reflexively. However, that slower part of the brain that's doing a higher level of analysis of what's going on realizes, no, it's not a snake, it's a piece of rope. And you calm down. Now, another interesting story. I was preparing to go to a retreat at a place called the Franciscan Center over in Tampa. And I was going out on the porch and to load stuff in the car and there was a snake on our porch and it went nuts just a black snake harmless snake I was it didn't frighten me but it's kind of banging itself up against the the uh, um, screen trying to get out so I opened the screen door and the snake found its way out and so forth and so on okay I uh, get in the car go to Tampa get settled in and I'm walking around the property and I look down and there's this sinuous shape on the ground that's partly covered by leaves. My mind it goes to it's a snake in a fraction of a second no it's not a snake it's a piece of insulated wire that was dropped on the ground and partially covered by leaves. That proves to me this process that I just described to you absolutely proves to me that it's valid. It also proves to me that because of my meditation practice, there was what Shyla Catherine calls a potent pause. Instead of me getting anxious and jumping back, I noticed very quickly that it wasn't a snake, it's a piece of wire. This is a core part of this process of coming to terms with craving and clinging, the second noble truth. The ability to train your mind to be alert to that kind of change and be responsive rather than reactive, to not be impulsive have a disciplined response not to something that you know is that a snake or a piece of rope but just generally about what you see or what you hear so I'm going to use another example now that's interpersonal so this has to do with self-identity oh but I have to add one more thing in there. I mentioned bottom-up, which is the original, original stimulus. Top-down is, is your history, your memory banks that's providing a definition and a plan of action regarding to that. That's top-down. So, uh, top-down is not necessarily the most effective and responsible 
course of action in a situation. Because that's how we misperceive things. The most basic top-down phenomena is that there's a, a separate enduring self. It's an ego that must be defended or gratified. So, um, now I'm going to talk about the top-down part. Let's assume that my self-identity is organized around growing up in a family that routinely criticized me and shamed me. Gave me feedback about my identity, my competency, my worthiness, my lovability that created an assumption, top-down assumption, that I am not worthy, I'm not capable, and therefore can't be certain about how I'm going to be experienced. So it's insecurity, right? This is all in the background. It's been stored away. Um, Sankara Dukkha, talked about that last week and the week before that. So. I go to a party with a bunch of strangers, people I don't know. So I've already got this background insecurity kind of bubbling, simmering in the background. I open the door and go into the room and somebody across the room looks at me and frowns. That's all they do. They look at me and frown. That's bottom up. Visual process has been stimulated. My prior experience of being not good enough um, encounters this new stimulus. That's what is self-state conflict. So there's a, an idealized self as unworthy that goes into a situation and interprets, it's called confirmation bias, interprets what I see as being uh, as uh, proof that I am unworthy. What's, there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but that person knows. And I don't even know that person. So that activates through long-term potentiation a lot of social awkwardness and insecurity. So I go into the party and I wander around and I have all these awkward exchanges with other people. And they look at me funny because I'm behaving funny, right? Because they've got their own top-down insecurities going as well. That's, that's an example of craving and clinging. Now, let's talk about self-state integration from the perspective of the same situation, including that I have a background of being shamed and humiliated. By the way, I don't have that. My parents, I was a um, precocious child. My parents were amazed at how smart I was and how capable I was and all that stuff. But that has its own story about what I bring into an encounter. And I just want to be clear about that. I, I wasn't afflicted with a sense of, of, of unworthiness and shame in that way, in other ways probably I was, but anyway, back to the story. Self-state um, integration 
I might still have that background of having been shamed, but I've done a lot of therapy and I've practiced mindfulness meditation and, and loving kindness meditation and so forth and so on. So the conflict potential is there, but because of viraga, there's a different kind of top-down system going here of mindfulness, uh, self-compassion, so forth and so on. I might go directly across the room and introduce myself to that person, chat it up with them, get a sense of how they're responding to me, which might actually disconfirm my original fear that they don't like me. I might even say to them, you frowned when I came in the room. What was that about? And they say, well, you know, it came in from outside and it's pretty bright out there. And I just had to frown because there's a flash of light in my eyes. Or they might say, yeah, well, you know, you look like a jerk. But I still would, you know, that person's got her opinion. Doesn't really have to define me. But that's the difference between self-state conflict and self-state integration. You're in a situation, you still got your karmic uh, background, your confirmation bias about who you're expected to be, the ideal self. The ideal self could either be, oh, I'm perfect, or the ideal self can be, I am fatally flawed. And then there's the ideal self of the outside world. The outside world is always going to admire me, or the outside world is always going to reject me. So that's what we're talking about with craving and clinging is understanding how that process operates and being able to uh, make appropriate adaptations to um, the situation. So what I'm going to talk about next week is going to involve another core concept of Buddhism called Paticca Samuppada, which is translated as dependent origination. I like to use the terms contingent provisional emergence, which I'll be talking about. But it basically explains how craving and clinging operates and how we can change our karma. And I just described that in terms of this party scenario. And the more we can cultivate this integration of personality, self-state integration, the more it creates the circumstances that allow us to live a life that's more kind, more compassionate, more generous, has more patience and equanimity, more adaptiveness. And that creates the, pattern, uh, the, the platform for self-state liberation. Self-state liberation is going to be explored in the meeting after the next meeting. So, um, this is what I have to say about tonight about the second noble truth. Now we have the opportunity for people to make comments or ask questions about what you heard me say. Hi, Peter. Brian here. All right, Brian. I just wanted to, um, building on what you had said, uh, and you've probably read this book, 
but there's a book called um, Altered Traits. Oh, yeah. Um, I have it, and I've yeah. talked about it. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And for those who haven't read it, it talks about how repeatedly meditating and stimulating mindfulness or kindness or whatever you're habitually doing rewires your brain and can actually lead to your altered state can lead you to a more permanent or long lasting or stable altered trait of personality, which are supposed to be unchangeable. Some people said in psychology, right? Yeah, when I went to grad school, I was told that your brain is fully formed by the time you're in your 20s, and it's all downhill from there. But that was in the mid-80s, and we know now for sure that the brain is changing all the time, even when we're elderly. But it depends on what we're doing with our brains when we're elderly, what, what we're feeding their brains, you know, the kind of food we eat, whether we get exercise, whether we continue to try to learn things. That's what makes a huge difference. Other questions or comments? Yes, Mary. So um, I've said previously that I'm new to um, Buddhist philosophy, but what I'm I'm not new to is the connection between mind and body. Through um, like historically, I've been been involved in something called the Alexander Technique. Uh, some people know what that is; most don't. And um, another body therapy technique, orthobionomy. And um, the reason I was doing that stuff is because I experienced a lot of physical pain and discomfort in my muscles. And, 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 you know, I would have an issue and I would have to figure out what am I doing that's causing this problem? You know, why does my arm hurt? this way and so um you know a couple decades of doing this and paying attention to myself for me i have a very clear awareness of stuff that's going on inside of my body and i call the i call them tension patterns and so i can get a sense that i'm tightening in the chest and the hip and those two are connected. And um, like when I um, pay very close attention to those things, I can generally tie them back to kind of a mental state, not really a particular thought, but a, a mental state of desire or you know wishing something was different or wanting something to be always there. You know, I. I um, Ever since I was a child, I absolutely hate change. Um, I hated that I outgrew my clothes. I wanted my clothes to grow with me. Um, so I want to explain or like get a little clarification in, you know, I found your talk really interesting. I'm going to listen to the podcast and take notes. Um, and read the notes that I'm going to post too. That'll help. Um, where do I get those? They'll be posted. They'll be on the site. Oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't discovered that. I've been taking my own yeah, notes. Go, go, to, the, go okay. to the website, okay. and you'll see it uh, this week. It'll be posted, but you'll, you can go to the archives, and there are years of, okay. of recordings okay. of talks and notes. Okay. 
So one thing that I'm working with right now is a tension pattern involving like a lot like my this side of my face, the side of my chest, and this shoulder. And what's behind that tension pattern is just a like a I'm not safe. So like what you talk about going to a party, you don't really feel like you're going to be welcomed. You don't feel safe. And so I don't really have like, I don't feel like I'm thinking about not being safe, but this tension pattern fires and it makes me uncomfortable. I feel awkward and I'm not going to do well in a social situation. But I have a specific question about like, even when I am by myself and I notice that I still do that tension pattern, it's, it's like it's always there, always, always. And I can do a mental thought, like I can tell myself I am safe and it undoes itself. And then within a breath, it's back. And then I can tell myself I am safe and it undoes itself. And then next breath, it's back. That's long-term potentiation. It's that, that tension you're describing, there are neural pathways that are associated with your, the muscles in your body. And so it, it kind of anchors it. You talked about, did you describe it as the Alexander method? Is that right? The Alexander technique. Yes, I'm aware of that. Okay. Okay. Um, so one of the things I'm going to be talking about next week that's part of the Paticca Samapada structure is called Nama Rupa which I've talked about before many times. Rupa is what's going on in your body. Nama is what your mind makes of that. The self that your mind makes relative to what's going on in your body. So, um, my assumption is that there's some deeply held memory associated with that tension you kind of alluded to that you know what it is uh maybe and maybe you don't might be just lodged in your unconscious but that's part of it now on one level you can know why it's happening from a buddhist perspective it's more important to understand how it's happening and what i mean by that is when you understand how your mind There's a tension in your body that's unpleasant. Signal goes to your brain that says it's unpleasant feeling in the body. The mind gets apprehensive about it. Affect avoidance, wants to be rid of it. So it becomes more anxious. It sends a signal back to those muscles. They become more tight because the brain has kind of authorized it. Because the muscles are more tight, it confirms what the brain is assuming. You see how that operates? This is characteristic of the stresses that we're all suffering from. This is craving and clinging. Craving is the unpleasant feeling. Clinging is the belief system that's associated with it. So being aware of that with mindfulness and Doing what you say you're doing, you can become aware of it, the tension, and it goes away and it comes back. You just keep doing that. 
right. And you use right. breath awareness to release the connection between the mind and the and the tension. Just relax, 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 relax. That's yeah, been I, my my case for my whole meditation career. I could tell you all the stuff that used to be stiff and 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 distorted in my body that isn't anymore. But I've been practicing for about half my life now. The other thing that you can do is practice loving kindness meditation. That will help you. If you go to the um, archives, the guided meditation archives in the website, and just scroll down the list until you find a loving kindness meditation. Just practice that. It's a guided meditation. That might help you change that pattern. Okay? Yeah, my experience has been that with other tension patterns, I work on them. I usually have to find a phrase. Well, I identify kind of the negative thought that's behind it. And then I have to get creative to think of a, a more positive or a, mm -hmm. a positive phrase. And so I do repeat that. I, you know, I get really good at sensing when that tension pattern fires. And then I, I don't worry about the tension pattern itself because what happens is I start judging it and then I get into the loop. Right. Like, well, there, there's that. That's, that tension pattern means I'm stupid. So, and there so is again. And so... When you start, when you when you realize that that's going on, and you change the wording. By the way, the first thing in the first thing in the loving kindness mantra, "May I be safe." Right. So that applies to this. But when you go back to the breath, and you counter the story, consciously relax. Every time you breathe out. Your body is open to relaxation, to softening, to letting go. Make yeah, that part so, of the routine as well. So, so yeah, so the, the end result of what I've been doing is that I'm successful, that that mm -hmm. tension pattern disappears. It's not even accessible anymore Right. after a couple weeks. Right. That's the way it works. And uh, that's one of the... Uh, benefits of dedicated meditation practices it builds your confidence you know how to change your mind and you know the benefits that it brings and that's also long-term potentiation okay thank you for sharing that Are there other questions or comments we're getting past the time of, of when we usually close but if there's any more uh, conversation or question Ask it, or we'll have our closing for the evening. All right, so let's sit together. you well folks hope we're all reasonably safe and happy until the next time we have a chance to chat